Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, why are women dropping out of the workforce in India? The poorer you are, the more you have to work. When you get a little more comfortable, uh, you don't really have to work. A CO2 shortage is taking the fizz out of the pub industry. I have got both brewers and pubs that are suffering because of this crisis. I was talking to one yesterday with an MP. It will wipe out his year's profits because he hasn't been able to bottle for 10 days. But first, competition among British supermarkets is fierce and is causing retailers to band together. Tesco, the UK's largest grocer, has announced it's planning a strategic alliance with Carrefour, Europe's largest retailer. The two say that will use their joint buying power to cut costs and offer customers more competitive prices. Richard Cockett is our Britain's business editor. Richard, why are they doing this? Well, Tesco has been in a lot of trouble in the past few years. It is still Britain's biggest supermarket. But over the last uh, six, seven years, it's been having a torrid time. Two reasons. First of all, the German discounters, Aldi and Lidl, have been very successful. Um, they really are old style, um, stack them high, um, sell them low. And they've been nibbling away at market share of all the big retailers, particularly of Tesco. Tesco's recovered a little bit, but still they're very vulnerable on price. And secondly, Tesco's two competitors, Sainsbury and Asda, they recently did a big tie-up. And if that goes through the competition authorities, that tie-up will now be Britain's largest supermarket. So it's all about economies of scale. You want to get economies of scale so that you can buy in bulk from suppliers more cheaply. And that's what they're going to do with Carrefour. And that means you can cut costs and compete with the likes of Aldi and Lidl. And is Carrefour also facing competition from the same uh, German groups? Yes, the German groups are everywhere. Carrefour hasn't been suffering as much as some of the British supermarkets, but they've also had a tough time recently. Carrefour has already done a similar deal with a German supermarket, but in Britain, this is a first. Never before has a British supermarket done such a tie-up with a European one. And hovering over all this is Amazon, the online behemoth, because what everybody is watching is when Amazon will make its move into the British and European grocery markets. They've got various little tie-ins at the moment, but at some time, they're expected to buy a big supermarket. And then, you know, you have incredibly economies of scale, the most efficient online retailer in world married to, say, a Tesco or Sainsbury's. So that's what everyone's worried about in the future. Now, this might sound good news for customers in that they could get lower prices as a result of this. But what about the suppliers of Tesco? Yeah, there's 
they've all, yeah, they, they've got to worry. There's already been complaints from um, suppliers, bodies about what this will mean because, of course, the way that Carrefour and Tesco are going to use this, they're going to sort of, it's to cut costs and they're going to cut costs by screwing down on the suppliers. So it's been a big controversy in Britain in the past decade, say, um, farmers supplying milk, etc. A lot of them have gone out of business and you're seeing a lot of cartels now in, say, milk supplying to supermarkets. So, yes, not, probably not a good day for supplies. But it's interesting how this is going to work across Europe. I mean, this, this has never sort of really been done before, and we don't have any details on exactly how they're going to do it. So, generally, we could say, yeah, suppliers are not going to be too happy, but we've yet to see any details on how exactly it's going to work. And the big issue for supermarkets is whether to have the huge market where everybody gets their weekly shop and their trolley floweth over, or to have the local ones on the high street where people nip out and get their milk and butter on a Wednesday evening. Which way is the industry moving? That's right. Shopping habits are changing, and again, partly driven by Little and Aldi. So in Britain, the big ones, Sainsbury's, Tesco, they've been frantically closing the big out-of-town supermarkets that proliferated in the 1990s and early noughties. People aren't just going there anymore. And this is partly explained by the growth of the internet. So Britain leads the world pretty well in internet shopping. At the moment, 7% of our groceries are bought online, but that's only going in one direction. So people are not interested in spending their whole mornings trooping around sort of dingy out of town shopping or buying their stuff when they can just buy it online. So supermarkets have now got to be much more nimble. They're reducing the range of stuff that you can buy in a supermarket. There's no need to have, you know, 32 types of, of fizzy water in a supermarket when you can buy all that perfectly easily online. And they're also having more small, they're called metro markets, in the city centres, more convenience shopping, and they are open for longer. So the whole kind of trend is changing of how we buy, when we buy, and what sort of environment we want to buy in. Britain actually leads the world in, in these trends because we have such high internet penetration. Less so in Europe, but again, Europe's only going one way. A British-French supermarket group, we should call it Appalachian Cotton Trolley. <laughs> Richard, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Next. As the working world strives for gender equality, one country has experienced a sharp drop in the number of women in the workforce, India. Soon to be the world's most populous country, India now stands 121st out of 131 countries, ranked by the International Labour Organization for Female Participation in the Workforce. Stan Pinyal, our South Asia business and finance correspondent, joins us in the studio. And on the line, Rama Bijapurka is a marketing consultant and author of A Never Before World. So, Stan, you've just written a report about this. Why are Indian women dropping out of the workforce? Well, I mean, you would expect them to be joining the workforce. They're better educated than ever before. The economy is growing rapidly. It, it doubles every decade or so. And there are other factors like fertility rates are falling. And in other countries, that has pushed women into the workforce. Something different is, is happening in India. There seems to be an issue of supply of labor into the workforce, meaning as Indian households get richer, 
nature. They have a propensity for uh, for women not to work. So th- that's a, a major factor that, that we look at. Uh, some of this is good news. Girls are staying in school longer, so that, that means that they're staying out of the workforce for, for a little bit longer. But what's disconcerting is that the more educated girls get – the less likely they are to work. So that's the supply side. On the demand side, the job situation in the Indian economy is is, is not great. And uh, even if there isn't a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of underemployment. And what you don't have in India are the kind of mega factories that you have seen in other parts of Asia, whether it's China or even neighboring Bangladesh, that have soaked up uh, potential female workers and and promoted female employment. And that way, India doesn't have these kinds of mega factories. So both for, for cultural reasons and for economic reasons, you have ended up having this uh, not only low female employment, but falling female employment, which is which is very unusual. Now, you travel all around the country for this report. Did you find differences in different provinces? Yeah, absolutely. India is, is, is an extremely diverse country. If you look at the northeast of the country, so, so the bit that's just to the east of Bangladesh, female employment rates there are, are actually quite high. There's been a lot of migration, male migration to, to, to the rest of the country. And a lot of... Uh, a lot of female employment in India is agricultural. So here, uh, female employment rates are quite high. If you go to what's called the Hindi Belt, which is the the, the north of the country, places like Bihar and, and Uttar Pradesh, female employment there is is much lower. Some of the society is is more conservative. The south of the country, which which is relatively richer, is a hodgepodge with with some states having relatively high employment, some states having relatively low employment. Now, Rama, you serve as a director on the board of several uh, blue chip companies. What's your impression of what's going on? Part of it is there's nothing new about this phenomenon. We've always had the have to work and the want to work. And the poorer you are, the more you have to work. When you get a little more comfortable, uh, you don't really have to work. And once you're getting into the self-actualization stage because you actually have a formidable amount of education, I think then the need to work is very high. Part of it is definitional. I mean, the, the women girls are staying in school longer. But part of it is also the fact that the blue chip companies of the kind of board and serve are not really the major employers in India. The major employer is the informal sector. And so there is a real trade-off between how much more you're going to work when you get out of the house versus how much more it's going to cost you to get out of the house as well. The logistics of living in India are not very easy. So there are a fair amount of uh, logistic challenges. So if you think about the household unit, you need the woman at home in order to be able to be what we now call the CEO of the household, doing what is called outdoor work, you know, going out of the bank, getting out of the house, doing all the stuff that needs to be done so that at least one member of the family is free to earn. We're also a very, very child-centered country, a lot like China, and the very drop in fertility rates is basically saying that you've got to give the kid that you have the best that you can actually give the kids. Now, the best can be more money in certain cases, because if you don't earn that money, then you uh, don't get to buy the child the education that he or she needs and so on. But having said that, there is a lot, lot of pressure on mothers to be at home to get that one kid competitive because the odds on the demand and supply side between quality education and the number of kids seeking that quality education, that's a, a really, really big stretch target. 
And Rama, in, in your book, you, you mentioned somebody called the goddess EMI. Uh, maybe you can spell yeah. out uh, who, who is this goddess and yeah. why is she so good for female emancipation? Oh, the goddess EMI is the uh, equal monthly installment, which is what you pay when you take a loan. And India is a completely aspirational society. People are taking loans for a bigger house, for a house at all, and so on. So when you take a loan, you need two people to pay back. And the goddess EMI, I say, liberates the woman because she's actually encouraged to go outside the house and earn the income in order to pay back the EMI that helps the family get better. And once somebody steps out of the four walls of the home, the worm, so to speak, does turn. So what can be done to change this low participation rate? First, Dan. Well, there are two issues. Uh, One of them is around the supply of labor, female labor into the workforce. And here, social mores need to evolve, need to to be challenged. uh, And that's something we we discuss extensively in in this week's Economist. The second one, uh, I think, is on the the demand side. So creating the kind of job opportunities that, uh, that women want. They're falling out of the agricultural workforce at a rapid clip. But what we see happening is that many of the new jobs that are being created, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in construction services and so on, are, are in heavily male-dominated industries. And, and that, that's something that's going to have to be tackled. Rama? Public infrastructure, the minute it is safer for women to work outside the home, more women will, as well as better transport, all that, then childcare. Today, there is absolutely no organized childcare and the prices of non-organized childcare are actually going up. Service businesses for moderately educated women, because I think the manufacturing bus is not a bus that a lot of countries are going to get onto anymore. So it's a service business for moderately educated women, which does not require a whole lot of outdoor jobs. So no pizza delivery, but more coding computers, call center type stuff without the night shifts until public infrastructure improves. Rama, Stan, thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to read more of Stan's report on Indian women in the workforce, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. A dark cloud has come over the British summer. The pubs don't have enough carbon dioxide to put in our beer and our cider. How will Britain cope, especially if England crash out in the World Cup to Colombia? Well, to join me to talk about this problem is Bridget Simmons, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association. Bridget, what's gone wrong? Well, CO2 is needed in two ways in brewing. First of all, it's needed in lager to produce the fizz. And secondly, it's needed in the pub to take the beer from the cellar to the pump. Uh, So we've had a shortage. We had a shortage in 2015. But in 2015, you could buy CO2 from the continent. This time, there is also shortages there too. CO2, food grade CO2, which is needed in this process, is a byproduct of fertilisers. Farmers don't use the fertilisers this time of the year. So there is a tendency for those plants to go into maintenance. So we have at least one plant in maintenance, but we have one which has had a technical issue. It should have been back online this last weekend, but it will take us two to three, if not longer, weeks covering the whole industry, bearing in mind this is not just a brewing industry problem, this is a problem for crumpets, uh, for food suppliers, extending the life of salads, for abattoirs trying to kill chickens and pigs. 
And could we have seen this coming? As, I mean, farms don't need nitrogen fertilizers every summer, right? So why is this a particular problem in 2018? I'll be honest and say the CO2 producers are not great communicators. We had no prior warning that this was going to be an issue. I do. Ha- there are some brewers like Heineken who produce their own CO2 at their own breweries. But the rest of the industry, we just did not know that they were going to have this serious problem this year. And of course, we've got unprecedented hot weather. So we have the capacity in the brewing industry to produce 10 million pints a day. But I've got breweries working 24-7 to get the beer out, not only, of course, for the hot summer, but also because we have the World Cup and we have an England team that's playing well. We reckon that the World Cup could be a boost to pubs of over £50 million. We went through a very long, dark, cold winter. It didn't end until the end of April. We have very high taxes. We pay the highest taxes in Europe, Finland, for our beer duty. High business rates. Pubs are suffering. So this is the worst time for us to have a problem like this. And naive listeners might say, we're drowning in carbon dioxide. Why don't we all just breathe out into a tube and, you know, then we would have enough. It really needs sophisticated treatment to get the right sort of carbon dioxide. It does. It has to be food grade CO2. So you can't in a pub rush out and use bottled gas uh, that you might use in diving. We have talked to the Food Standards Agency about whether there's an alternative, but there really is not an alternative. And we need to look in the long term. So I'm now saying to government, this is a big issue. We've been told by the plant in Teesside that they could increase their storage capacity, but it would cost a million pounds and they would expect the industry to pay for it. Well, the brewing industry probably wouldn't do all that. But if you combined all the industries who have an interest in this and you worked with the government, we need to find a long-term solution. And there are alternatives, surely. Aren't a bitter doesn't use this carbon dioxide in the way that lager does? No, if you've got draft ale, you don't need it to produce it. You might need it in a pub, but if you can either pour it straight from the cask or you can use, some pubs will still have old-fashioned pumps, that they'll hand pumps they'll be able to use. I mean, we're very clearly saying, go to the pub and watch the football. That's the responsible place to be. And if your favourite beer isn't available, this is an opportunity to try a different type of beer. But there is no absolute shortage. And a lot of this has been a bit of scaremongering. You had some of the supermarkets and bookers saying they were restricting people buying lots of beer. But that was partly because they were worried about stockpiling. We have got enough beer to go round. But I have got both brewers and pubs that are suffering because of this crisis. I was talking to one yesterday with an MP. It will wipe out his year's profits because he hasn't been able to bottle for 10 days. And let's say we have another hot summer next year. How confident are you that we'll have enough CO2 then? I'm talking to the government very seriously. They understand the issues. Small Business Minister Andrew Griffiths has shown a particular interest in this. I have written to him yesterday and asked him to convene a round table to have this discussion so we're not doing this this time next year. So I'm hoping that once we solve this, we can move forward with across industry and across government and across the CO2 industry to solve this problem. Well, on behalf of all lager drinkers, good luck. Bridget Timmons, thank you very much indeed. Are you running out of beer? We'd love to hear from you on that or any other issue. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Please rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Philip Coggan in London. This is The Economist. 
the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.